Take your Bibles and look with me at 1 Peter 4 for a moment. It's, of course, true that our hearts are always filled with that familiar mix of earth's sorrows and heaven's joys when a beloved friend goes home to be with the Lord. But in 1 Peter 4, this next section, verse 19, happens to be Doc's favorite of this letter, his favorite verse in this letter. In 1 Peter 4.19, Peter says after this discussion that we're going to be studying, he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It's that wonderful description of our God that thrilled our dear friend's soul. It is because it is where our assurance rests. We've entrusted our souls. The only thing that matters is our soul. That's all that matters with the life of a human, a living soul. All souls will live for all eternity. It just depends on whether it will be Christless or with Christ. But all that matters is the soul. And Peter says, we as believers have entrusted our souls to a faithful creator. There's there's no higher privilege or place in all of creation than with the creator. He is the creator of all things. Therefore, he is the creator of every soul. And that means every soul is in his infinite power. He can do with any soul what he pleases. Every soul is inescapably accountable to him. And so there can be no greater comfort than to know that the creator of souls is also a faithful creator. We have looked so often at what the scriptures testify regarding God's faithfulness, 2 Timothy 2.13, he cannot deny himself. He cannot renounce himself. He cannot lie, Titus chapter 1 verse 2. He cannot be tempted to be evil because he himself has no evil within himself. He cannot change and therefore become anything less than holy and righteous and good. He cannot break an oath or a promise. Therefore, he cannot be unfaithful. It was spoken to God's people right out of the gate. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant. He's an undergirding God. He's an enduringly trustworthy God. He keeps his covenant and his loving kindness out of the essence of who he is. He can be nothing other than faithful. He watches over what he has promised. He watches over it. He cares for it, takes care of it, makes sure nothing attacks it, nothing would take it away, nothing kills it. Peter had said this in chapter 1. We have a salvation reserved, preserved, cannot fade away, cannot be corrupted. It's reserved in heaven and protected by the power of God for his people. There's a careful attendance by God. 
keeps his promises. A.W. Tozer reminded us of the everyday impact of that truth. He said this, Upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenants stand and his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance to the life to come, the tempted, the anxious, the fearful, the discouraged may all find new hope and good cheer in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is faithful. He will ever be true to his pledged word. The hard-pressed sons of the covenant may be sure that he will never remove his loving kindness from them, nor suffer his faithfulness to fail. End quote. Not to be outdone, John Owen said this, this consolation comes from the assurance of faith and our help from God's promises. This is what relieves our souls of all fears, doubts, and troubles. It either prevents them or is stronger than them. For comfort is the relief for the mind against sorrow and trouble, end quote. God, the God of hosts, who is like you, Psalm 89.8 says. Almighty Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. It is your permeating environment. And so we're told in Scripture to hold fast to that confession, for our God is faithful, having promised. That is why verse 19 becomes so precious it is to a faithful creator that Christians entrust their souls. What does that mean? We give them over. We give over our souls to God. What is our soul? It's our personhood. It's who we are. It's our existence. You don't have anything if you don't have a soul. You don't exist. God brought our souls into existence, and he made our souls unique to us. It is our personhood. It is our life. It, it's what brings meaning. It is, as Solomon says, filled with eternity set in the heart. We know that we are eternal beings. And to entrust that to another, that is the most monumental decision, the most monumental work that could ever happen. To give over our souls to God. Literally, the term here for entrust has the idea of setting it before God for his preservation. You preserve it. You take my soul. You preserve it. You take care of it. You protect it. I can't. I can't safeguard it. I commend my soul would be another way to say it. I commend my soul to God so that my whole person, who I am as an eternal soul for all eternity, is given over to God's will and to his eternal purposes. I give it to you and I release my ability, my right, my hold in some way thinking that I could preserve it. I give it to you. And in... In verse 19, Peter gives us the context in which the security of our souls is most powerfully experienced. Notice, therefore, let those who suffer, let those people entrust their souls to a faithful creator. It is when Christians 
suffer because we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the context of this section. You've come to Christ, you've given your life to him, and the people in the world who, un, who don't believe and who, whose heart is corrupt and they don't have forgiveness and they won't respond to Christ, they don't bow to him as Lord, they are their own captain of their soul, they are going to see your salvation and come against it and make you suffer. And Peter says, as Christians suffer because we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our souls are given to God for preservation. That tells you two things. One, your soul is the only thing that matters, not your physical preservation, not your physical safety. We're so bound up in that. We so much want relief from all of the physical sorrow and all the things that happen on earth and all this trouble that's coming. We obsess over protection from it, pain-free living, on and on we go. But, but Peter makes it very clear that it is your soul that really matters. So we entrust that to God for his preservation. And it implies, secondly, that you can't take care of it. Can't take care of your physical life, can you? I mean, you could try. We, we try. And that's okay. We, we have medical science. We have all these things. But I don't know if you've ever gone back into the Old Testament, particularly the book of Genesis, and you read what happened after the fall and endless genealogies. And what do the genealogies say over and over again in a repeated sort of banging of a drum? And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he's talking about humanity and the curse. And no matter how many ways we have these great technological advances that keep us from pain and keep us undiseased for a while, and every one of us still marches toward the grave. I can't even take care of my physical life forever, let alone my soul. So when we suffer, Peter says in this context, this suffering that comes because people don't want the Lord Jesus Christ that you serve, in fact, back up to verse 13, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ. So now he's talking about sharing in the sufferings of Christ who suffered for us and as a prototype, look at verse 14, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, we've looked at that before, Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, so when Christians are attacked in some way by those who hate the truth and hate the Lord Jesus, that is when we keep entrusting our souls to our faithful creator. That is it. But Peter also makes a distinction here that must not be left out of our thinking. Look at verse 19. Let those who suffer according to the will of God they entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's right. We share the sufferings of Christ. We're reviled for the name of Christ. We suffer as a Christian. But in the midst of the suffering, as we continue to follow the will of God and obey the word of God, our resolve and our convictions, Peter says, become impenetrable. God wants to put this preservation work this preserving work that he's doing on display as we suffer for Christ. That's why I've entitled this 
entire section, Suffering for Christ, Powerful Assurance for Our Souls. Suffering for Christ, Powerful Assurance for Our Soul. Why? Because you know the powerful assurance that the Spirit of God gives us because he rests upon us, this passage will say. You, you end up knowing it and experiencing that assurance at deep and profound levels that cause your faith to be impenetrable no matter what you suffer. It's not a work you and I do. I don't, I don't crank that up. I can't. No sheer willpower will do it, not even years in Christ, if I have a weak faith and I'm not trusting God. You can, have, you can be saved for years and still be weak and and not actually be as faithful as you need to be and have the assurance that you should have. Yeah, there are lots of Christians who've been in Christ a long time, but they lack assurance. Why? They're not according to the will of God in their life the way that they could, the way the power of the Spirit has given them to live. And so they limp along in ways that they don't have to. Peter is wanting us to come to the place where we experience this impenetrable fortress of love for Jesus Christ and faithfulness to him, he wants that to grow in us so that our assurance grows, yes, I belong to God. My soul is taken care of. I'm settled. Bring on the death. Bring on the suffering if that's in the purpose of God. Bring on the hatred of the world if that's what they're going to do. My soul is anchored. Let me show you how this worked itself out in the beginning days of the church. Look at Acts chapter 5. Just as we sort of introduce this section, Acts chapter 5 is an amazing account. And guess who is involved? Peter. They had been given the signs of an apostle. And man, the, the buzz was happening. They had later in... Chapter 5, there's, there are people coming around the apostles because they've been given these sign gifts, these displays of miraculous power to heal and to cast out demons because as God was sending the message that Jew and Gentile were together in the church, there was power that attended the message to show them that the word that they were speaking was true. They weren't mere displays to, to wow people. Look. The Pharisees saw Christ heal people and they killed him for it. The mere powerful display of miraculous supernatural things doesn't save or change the heart as the New Testament makes very clear and Christ's death demonstrates. But when, a, when, a, when the message came from the apostles, it hadn't yet been written down in the inspired written word and it came and said Jew and Gentile are together in the church. Everyone comes by the same faith. It's no longer by the old covenant where you have to come up against the law of God and only know that you're a sinner. You're only condemned. You never have any hope. No, there's a death, a cross, forgiveness, and everyone has their same access, Ephesians 2, by faith. When that message came, there was the power of God needing to attend the message, and the apostles were given that power, and that's what was going on here. And the church, by the way, by the time you get to Acts 5, verse 12, the church is afraid because Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were killed on the spot. It was God's discipline 
of the earliest believers to show that he was serious about your heart and about your motives. And so, verse 11, great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard these things. Now look at verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. They're up in the Temple Mount under that big baseball, that big football field roof on that one side of the Temple Mount, Solomon's portico. It's a huge area. People are coming to Christ. This must have been a scene. Verse 13, none of the rest dared to associate with them. Yeah, of course, <laughs> because God had just practiced church discipline, the first. And if you had a... If you wanted to get alongside what was going on in Solomon's portico as the apostles were preaching, but you weren't genuine in your heart, now you know, well, that's serious. So no one dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to the number. This would have been disruptive in Jerusalem to such an extent that they were even carrying the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. And look at this. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. God was doing an amazing thing through these who had been chosen to be the first spokespersons for the new covenant. But notice verse 17, the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees. So this is Sanhedrin, this is, this is the Sadducees of that group. They'd been following Jesus around the countryside, now they killed him, now this movement is going on, they don't like it. Verse 17, God puts a postscript on what's going on in their heart. They are filled with jealousy. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Well, that's not going to do anything if God wants them out. Verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and took them out. <laughs> Later, when they, when they go back to bring them out for the council, the guards are standing there. You don't see any guards here. It's like suddenly when God wants to do a jailbreak, the guards don't even factor in. My guess is they're still standing there with their eyes open and can't see a thing. They're just in some sort of blind spot as the Lord just covers it. And the angel says, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Keep preaching. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Man, early morning hours, we're back on the temple mount, and they're teaching and preaching. And when the high priest and the associates came, they called the council together. So now the Sanhedrin gets involved. They call the council together and even all the Senate of the sons of Israel. And this is a, this is an, a meeting of the highest order of religious leadership in Jerusalem. And they sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. Go get those guys. So they'd only heard they were in prison. They don't know that it's already daybreak. And while they're convening their council... There's preaching going on. The officers who came didn't find them in prison. And they returned and reported back, we found the prison house locked quite securely. Don't you love that? The angel just locked the door back up. He locked the, <laughs> he locked the jail back up. I love that. 
God just knows what he wants to do. And he knows our puny little way of thinking through things. We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. I mean, it's like the Lord wanted him to get the keys out. We got these guys. Open the lock, open the door. Ha! I just love it. When he, we had opened up, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. And someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now that is very well worded and deliberate. You put them in prison. You went there and there was a lock and guards and they're standing in the temple preaching. And then the captain went along with the officers. You can imagine what they did. They're just in a big rush, this huge entourage with the officers. They proceeded to bring them back without violence. They went up to them. <laughs> they were afraid that the people would stone them because they were very popular. They must have gone up to them. There's no, there's no account of the conversation, but it must have been, guys, could you, could you come to our meeting? Something like that. They came without violence, of course. And when they brought them, they stood them before the council. And the high priest questioned them. I think it's interesting that the apostles went. You know, sometimes I think we get confused about this. Look, if you get jailed for your faith, you're not going to try a jailbreak. Um, you're, you're there. That's the way it goes. If somehow God allowed you out and then they come back to you and bring you back where you get to testify, you ought to be thinking about testifying and witnessing, not whether you get what you want. Even the apostles here, they, they're preaching again. The angel got them out. Couldn't they have just said, hey, the angel let us out. You can't really touch us. Off with you. But it was an official meeting. They get to testify about Christ in front of an official uh, gathering. All right, sure, we'll go. And they said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. That's an important reference because of what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. We told you not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They can sense that the people want to hear this, and they're the ones that killed him. Pretty soon they know the crowd's going to start saying, you guys killed the, the guy they're talking about. Peter and the apostles gave one answer. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. Now that's a finger right at them. And forgiveness of sins. There's mercy in this if you will admit and confess and repent. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We have God's spirit. You say Israel has God's spirit? No, you need to repent and get forgiveness from Christ, the one you killed, who's now alive. We have the Holy Spirit because we actually repented. We obey him in the gospel. And they're so angry. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill him. And then, 
A Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and he gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. Thutis rose up some time ago, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After that, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew some people away after him. He perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I'm saying to you, stay away from these men. Leave them alone. For this is the plan or action. If this plan or action is of men, it'll be overthrown. It's, it's of God. You, you will not be able to overthrow them. You could be found fighting against God. It's interesting. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Gave them the same order. Stop teaching and preaching in this name. And they beat them. Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Think about that. Unjustly slandered, unjustly treated, unjustly jailed, beaten. And they had this perspective, Lord, all that matters is our souls. You wanted us to testify, we testified. Persecutors came, they needed the gospel. We told them. If it had been family members, they would have told them. If it had been co-workers that hate them now because they came to Christ, they would have told them. If it had been distant relatives, they would have told them. It happened to be government officials and religious officials, and they told them. You need to repent and come to Christ. And they were slandered. They were wrongly, wrongfully jailed and then beaten. And the same command was given, don't say anything. Get out of here. What was their perspective? Wow, that we would have the privilege of taking a blow for Christ. And what did they do? Oh, verse 42, every day in the temple from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Of course. We must obey God rather than men. Sure, we'll come to your meeting. Sure, you want to jail us, lock us up? We're not, you know, we're not interested in going with violence. Um, we left the jail because the angel told us, God's a higher authority than you. And when you say don't preach, we, we can't obey that. We're going to preach. What I want you to see here is that the men who were preaching were the men who considered themselves personally unworthy, but what a rich privilege to take a blow for Christ. Go back to 1 Peter. Notice verse 12. Let's just read the text. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though it were some strange thing that were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. 
If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And make sure that none of you defects. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or someone who troubles other people when it's not your work to do. We'll get into those terms next time. Don't suffer because of wickedness while you name the name of Christ. Don't defect and go back to that. Don't don't retaliate. Don't become like them when they come against you. Don't do that. But if you suffer as a Christian, you are not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name, the name of Christ, Jesus Christ, by which we are called Christians, and they were first called Christians at Antioch. In this name, glorify God when you suffer as a Christian. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Quoting Proverbs, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. Do you see it? Do you see it here? Your assurance in the midst of attacks and assaults is what God is doing through the attacks and the assaults to send his word, to sustain your faith, to protect you as evidence that your soul is secure. And the more galvanized and convinced and steady you grow in your faithfulness, the more assurance deepens in you, the more encouragement becomes deep and rich, the more bold you become when somebody comes against you to do the right thing. We are so worried and fretting over what is happening. Not saying we shouldn't be disgusted about it. We should be disgusted at the moral turpitude that is on the rise. We should be be upset with righteous indignation and we should with preaching say you are destroying your family and your life and this wickedness must be repented of. God's going to judge. We must preach that. And yet, our faith, our souls, we commend them to God. Do what you will to us. We're not trying to preserve something here that has eternal value. Nothing here has eternal value. A soul saved by Christ is all that matters. And souls lost to him are our greatest concern. So the commands in this section are clear. Don't be surprised that you suffer for Christ. Keep rejoicing. Don't defect and suffer for being wicked and entrust your soul to God. That's basically the thread of the the line of thinking here and the commands Peter gives. But for the sake of our outline, and just as we sort of jump in briefly here, let's frame it up around Peter's flow of thought. Peter deals with our perspective and attitude first. So the first point we'll be making is that we are reviled yet rejoicing. Reviled yet rejoicing. And we'll look at that in verses 12 to 14. Then Peter deals with our behavior and our testimony, our conduct, 
So we're suffering yet still sanctified. We're becoming more holy and righteous. We're not becoming unrighteous. That's verses 15 to 18. So reviled yet rejoicing, verses 12 to 14. This is a great way for Peter to introduce this. And by the way, he begins by just bringing that terminology that for Peter was probably not a natural thing for him at first as a gruff, surly fisherman. But he comes in here in his letter and has such a tender apostle's heart. And he says, beloved. Do you remember when he was urging us as persecuted aliens and strangers in chapter 2, verse 11? And he said it there too. Beloved. It's as though... The kind, tender affection and brotherly sentiment enters Peter's mind and makes its way to his pen whenever he's thinking about how difficult it is for precious saints to come under painful experiences. Don't you feel that? When, when there's some experience in a Christian's life that we know is the beginning of persecution or only at the heart of it, a persecution... We identify with those fellow sufferers like Peter does here. Notice chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also are partaker of the glory that's to be revealed, which he mentions also in this passage. I'm a fellow sufferer. I witness the sufferings of Christ and I'm a fellow sufferer. He's identifying with them. He wants them to know, not only did I witness Christ's sufferings, but I've experienced those same attacks that come. And so Peter opens this section because he has a tender love for God's people and a tender heart toward them when they suffer for the name of Christ. This is how it is in the body. I think of the way this church body rallies around one another when One of us is ostracized by unbelieving family members. Doesn't it grip your heart when you hear the accounts? I was in the church in Katy and meeting these, these men from Latin America and Central America, El Salvadoran pastor, and he he was booted out of his country. He and his family and ended up surprisingly in the wonderful providence of God in Houston and ended up at Cornerstone Bible Church. (laughs) And when I met him a few weeks ago, uh, for the first time, I was down there on a doing a sort of a version of Grace and Granite with Darren's guys when I was out for the Truth and Love Conference, and I met these men. And I heard their story about how the persecution had come and it came down on their heads in a devastating situation in their country and my heart went out to them and I said, "You, is there any way that you would be able to, at our expense, to come for the Courageous Churchmen Conference? I want to introduce you to our Spanish ministry and to my dear friend Henry Tolpilo and, and the men that do the work in our Spanish Ministry, Gans, Herrera, and all those guys. I, I want you to meet them. And so they came and they met and they were encouraged. I was talking with them this last weekend, Henry, and they were so blown away. 
There's a family of people like this who have that kind of care for one another and that brothers at arms that love one another. I mean, when they got booted out, they were alone. They didn't know where they were going to go. By some strange providence they couldn't have orchestrated, they ended up on a flight to Houston from South America, war-torn areas, embattled areas, dangerous areas, kicked out of their church. My heart goes out to them, and that's... That's the sense of what Peter's doing here. When, a, when someone in our midst has family that won't accept them because they've come to Christ, when some of you have had your jobs threatened because you hold to standards from Scripture and your job uh, it has an environment that's moving in the direction of the godless culture, when university students are threatened or can't get classes because some professor has decided that they're persona non grata, this, this is, our heart goes out to them. We rally around them. We have a tenderness about these things as those things increase. So Peter opens this section by saying, probably as one commentator translated it, dear friends, beloved dear friends, you're reviled but yet rejoicing. Notice, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. You might be uh, maybe uh, misunderstanding the softness of the language here. Literally, the, this is don't take offense at it. That's, that's the essence of it. Don't take offense. You say, how do you know that's the essence? Look back at verse 4 of this chapter. You remember your old life? You had you pursued a course, verse 3, of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And in all of this, as you got converted, your unbelieving friends are surprised, same word, that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation. They think it's strange in a shocked and offended way. That's this word. So now move that meaning to how Peter uses it here. Don't be shocked in an offended way. Don't be surprised like some, something uninvited intruded upon your safety. As if it's unexpected as to shock the senses. As if it's so unsettling that you didn't know it would come. As if it provokes your self-protective tendencies and you got to take care of yourself. No, that Peter says, don't do that. Don't take offense. Don't respond to the unbeliever's offense with an offended attitude of your own. That's what he says. We are not to give the world any reason to accuse us of being no different than they are. Why? Because God wants the power of God on display in your earthen vessel as your faith stands. Unbelievers are offended at our beliefs. They hate our pursuit of holy living. They're offended at the authority of scriptures. And all of it, Jesus says, is because they're ultimately stunned and offended at him. And when that offense comes raining down on our heads because we follow him, Peter says, I don't want you to be confused or stunned or shocked or personally taking up an offense against them. Don't do it. Nor does Peter downplay the the difficulty, notice he calls it a fiery trial. It's just a very difficult um, way to translate this. Uh, it's, it literally does mean a, a kind of burning going on. 
a kind of burning. And of course, that's why commentators and scholars have thought, well, A.D. 64, Nero sat there overlooking the city of Rome and basically delighting in watching it burn, massive fires all throughout the city, uh, just completely devastating huge portions of the city and its economy. And he sat there for the better part of two weeks just watching it. And history tells us that as he as everything kind of settled down, he began to slander, as he always did, and every Roman emperor did, the Christians. Historians will give evidence that he said they were the cause of all this, whether they actually directly, whether he was saying they directly destroyed the city or their influence made the gods destroy the city, it was their fault. And so not long after the disciples received Peter's Letter here, Nero then would begin his famous assaults on Christians in, a, in what was a targeted and very intense persecution empire-wide. And so Peter is perhaps referencing a new level of hatred coming toward these huddled believers, which likely resulted in, in the city's officials and some citizens beginning to assault Christians, maybe burning their homes, maybe burning the Christians themselves to death as martyrdoms were going to be on the rise. Maybe burning their livestock and their, their you know, stables where they kept their livestock to sort of ruin their economy. Whatever was being referenced here exactly, Peter clearly wants us to have the right view of what's taking place. And so he says, don't be offended. And notice his reasons. It comes upon you for your testing we know that. It's the testing of our genuine faith. True believers endure all the suffering, no matter what it is, and still hold fast their confession of faith. All true believers will persevere. All genuine Christians persevere. It doesn't mean we don't waver in terms of our boldness and our gospel witness and sometimes the mistakes we make in our life and the sin we know goes on in our own heart and the fact that we don't measure up all the time. That's all true as we're coming up in our sanctification. But our faith is never ultimately crushed. Why? It cannot be crushed. It cannot be snuffed out. Because it is the power of God that holds it. So as persecution comes, Peter says right here, don't be offended at it, but be reminded that it is coming upon you because God wants to use you as a tested vessel through which the gospel is going to go forth and you are going to demonstrate in your life, that means your perspective, your faith, your words, your message, your steadiness, under intense suffering, you're going to put his power to preserve human faith on display. And therefore, you're going to put the power of the gospel on display. You're going to be able to tell the persecutors, Jesus Christ can change your wicked heart because he has changed mine. And when you stand under their their tactics and their assaults, they will have no way to grapple with that power.
So Peter says persecution tests genuine faith. We'll look more at that next time because there's a few more things we need to say about it. But notice this last phrase at verse 12, as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, as though you didn't know that suffering for Christ has the benefit of testing your faith. You know. Now, what happens when suffering comes? We don't want to think about that. Lord, I just want the suffering to go away. I just, I just want it done. I don't want it, and if it has to be here, I want it done quickly. But Peter is saying here, you should not imagine that this is some strange thing, that your faith has to be tested, refined, and, and has to show itself off. You already know this. What we do in our minds is we say, no, I, I could grow without that, Lord. I, I could. I could be bold for the gospel without that. I know I can. Just give me a chance. Give me that chance. And Peter uses this phrase to say, no, don't respond to persecution like someone who thinks difficulties are not governed by the sovereignty of God, are not appropriate for believers in God. Isn't he love? How could this be appropriate? Stop thinking that way. To think that these difficulties aren't sanctifying, no, they are. To think that they aren't faith strengthening, they are. To imagine that they're not a testimony, no, they are a testimony. That they won't be gospel fruitful, they will be. You are not to imagine that the benefits of your tested faith are meaningless or not there. Persecution, persecution is not meaningless. The benefits, they far outweigh whatever's happening to us. So Peter says, don't take offense. We'll talk a little more about that next time, but notice verse 13, strengthen your, your assurance in it. You want assurance of your salvation? Strengthen it. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. What does he mean? And you're not like the others who are going to be under his judgment. No, the more... You share in the sufferings of Christ. Each blow for Christ ought to cause you to rejoice even more. That's more assurance. Each moment of suffering, each blow for Christ is greater and greater assurance and, and greater and greater rejoicing for what is to come. I'm not, I'm not outside of God's people. I am one of his. I'm one of his children. Lord, you bring this suffering to test genuine faith, and as you're testing genuine faith, the benefits are there. I do not trample the benefits. I know that they are there. And as you do that, then to the degree that I share in those sufferings, I am to rejoice all the more because that assurance is growing that I, at his revelation, will rejoice. I will not be under judgment. Beloved, when he comes... When the Lord Jesus Christ shows up, I was watching some clip, again, of these clips that come across the news and people mocking God. When the Lord Jesus Christ shows up on his day and his glory is revealed, every mouth will be closed. And our mouths as believers will be opened in greater and greater rejoicing. That's what Peter's referring to. 
Let the suffering come. The more you stand, the more you know you're not with them who are going to be silenced if they disobey the gospel. Far too often, we just want relief from suffering here. And we ought to be thinking, okay, Lord, in my humanness, I cry out to you like the psalmist. Save me from all this. That's our prayer. And as the Lord keeps whatever suffering to whatever degree in our life, we know it's not fruitless. It is building up in us an assurance, yes, I'm rescued. Yes, I'm his. And his power is on display in my life. And I won't be silenced. And my faith won't be snuffed out because it's protected by God. And your assurance, beloved, can be strengthened. We'll talk more about that next time. Let's pray. Father, what can we say? This is, this is where we live. We have fears and doubts and struggles and we're so afraid of pain and so afraid of suffering and so afraid of our name and reputation being slandered and our kids being taken away and jail coming our way. We're so fearful. And yet, we have an anchor for our souls. We are yours. We belong to you. And your spirit, the spirit of glory, rests on us. When we walk with you, we're to keep on rejoicing. What a great truth. This isn't strange to us. We must be tested so that your power can be on display. Help us to know that, to ground ourselves in this truth. Thank you that from the days of the early church, your people were put under the strain and testing so that we could see how faithful you've been to preserve your people. You're always so faithful to put your power on display. And so we ask you to help us in this study to understand it, bring it to our minds when we fear and swallow up our doubts and fears as we entrust our souls to you every day, commending our lives to you because we've given our heart and soul to you. Thank you for your mercy and your sustaining graces and your promises. We ask this for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.